Welcome to the Josh Blair Ministry Podcast, a podcast all about bringing inspiration and encouragement to your daily walk with Jesus. We pray the message you hear impacts you as you follow Christ. If you remember in week one, we talked about from the beginning, God has been initiating, He's been creating, and then He's inviting us to be a part of what He's doing. So in week one, we talked about how He's invited us to be a part of creation and to, to take care of creation, to till the ground, to cultivate the ground, to bring life out of the ground. Then we, last week, we talked about God has called us to be His people. And what does it mean to be part of God's people, to be in covenant relationship with Him, that Jesus gave everything to us freely, but once we receive it, there are certain things that we do as a part of being in covenant relationship with Him. There's part of walking in obedience and loving one another. And so this week, we're going to be talking about what it is, what's God's will for those who are not His people. And so we, I've titled it, God's Will for Those That Are Lost. And I know that uh, this can be a little bit interesting, and I'm making a really broad statement and oversimplifying you know, those who are saved and those who are not saved. I know it's a lot more complicated than that, because when you start to follow Jesus, it's a journey. And the process of sanctification or being made more like Christ is an immediate thing and a long-term thing. Does that make sense? When we accept Jesus, He sanctifies us, He makes us righteous, He gives us His righteousness, but we also are walking out that righteousness day in and day out. And so, for us to say, well, we are the righteous and you are not the righteous can be a little muddied. And, and so I'm, I'm not declaring that it's our right or responsibility to declare someone righteous and not. That's God's job. The reason I'm just making these two distinctions between those who are saved and those who are not saved is so that we can see what God's will is for people and how He desires to interact with us and work with us in, in His kingdom. And so I'm going to be talking about that. But it's important to know and to remember that when we're looking at God's will, First and foremost, His will is not about us, correct? His will is about Him. And He allows us to be a part of what He is doing, and He invites us to be a part of it, but it's not so that we can say we're somebody. It's so that our focus can be on others, serving others, loving others, giving to others so that they may also know God. And so that's His will. Anytime that our our focus becomes on us and thinking that the world revolves around us and God's will revolves around us, we need to be reoriented, redirected to make sure that our focus is on what God's will is, what God is doing. And so I want to just make sure that's clear before we jump in because His will is sovereign over all, all things, over your will, over all of creation. He's in charge. And even though He invites us to be a part of what He's doing, He's still operating manager. He still is the CEO. He's still the one who says, no, I veto that decision, but thanks for participating. You know, he has the final vote, the final say, but he invites us to be a part of it. And so we need to be aware of what God is doing, actively working out his plan and purpose in the world. And we are merely a part of it. I think about Joseph, right? Who his brother sold him into slavery. We talked about this in week one. And he was able to forgive his brothers once he realized that it really wasn't them that was causing all of these things. God was orchestrating and working through him so that many would be saved. And he was able to forgive because he realized 
that it wasn't about him, it was about what God was doing through him. So we're going to look at uh, this morning, what is God's heart for the, for the lost? And what is our responsibility in respect to those who are lost? How do we love? How do we receive? What, what do we do? And we answer this question for the last three weeks. What is God's role? What is our role corporately as a body of believers? And what is our individual roles? What are we to do? What are we called to do? And to answer that this morning, we're going to be looking at Scripture, Luke chapter 15, and then a portion of Luke chapter 16. So we're going to read the entire chapter of of Luke. How many said amen? Amen. Amen. When's the last time you read an entire chapter? Don't tell me. I don't want to know. You should have said, this morning, Pastor. I read it this morning. So we're going to jump into Luke chapter 15. And we're looking at the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. I love, I love these parables. Parables were stories and mysteries that Jesus would tell people to first to kind of confuse them, to be like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. And other times it was, he would tell these parables, these stories, to make people dig a little deeper, to press in and say, what does that mean? Because he would find out who, those who were really there to know, to know him and those that were there just to get fed some loaves and fishes. He would do some, say some of these things, but he was addressing uh, these parables, and we're going to talk about it here. Verse 1 in chapter 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. First of all, can you, can you be excited that Jesus accepts sinners and eats with them? Because if he was not that way, you and I would not be in this place this morning. Jesus, while we were still sinners, reached out to us, died for us, said, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were grumbling and complaining. And and as Jesus tells these parables this morning, he is addressing those who were the religious establishment. And so through that lens is how we're going to approach all of these things. But the Pharisees, they grumbled, complained against Jesus because he was supposed to be this rabbi, this holy man. Some said a prophet. And so they, they could not understand how this religious man was going against all the purity laws and all the Levitical codes that were established in the Old Testament as a man who was supposed to uphold the Old Testament, uphold the law. How is this man eating with these sinners, these tax collectors, the unclean? Because the Pharisees thought that their holiness could be contaminated by someone's unholiness. They believed that, that their, somebody else's sin would jump on them if they hung out with those who were unclean. And so they saw Jesus doing these things, this holy man, this rabbi, and it, they could not conceive that God's will would be for him to break these purity laws so that Jesus would hang out with them. They couldn't think about it. How could Jesus spend time with the unclean? How could he eat with them? You know, eating in, uh, in biblical times was a big deal, and it still kind of is a big deal today, but, you know, uh, I would love to have dinner and lunch with you sometime, or breakfast, I don't care. Just invite me over. Uh, and, but, but meals back then were a big deal because they actually had to go out and kill the animal first and prep it. And all this time you're waiting, 
you know, for the bread to cook and all of these things, you're spending time with each other. You're sitting down at table together. You're conversing. You're talking about life together. And you build relationships. And they thought, you can't break bread with those who are sinning because you're building relationships with those who are unclean. And they were upset with Jesus. So Jesus, he comes out and he begins to respond in these parables to counteract the wrong thinking of the Pharisees, the religious leaders uh, and so he, to, to tell them, you're thinking about it all wrong. And what's interesting in the church today is that sometimes we can look at those who don't know Jesus through the very same lenses of the, as the Pharisees. The Pharisees, these religious leaders, if you read the New Testament, they're the bad guys. They're, they're the ones we don't want to be like. Because they're the religious establishment and they're people that look down on people. They, they put all these laws on people and they don't even walk them out themselves. They're hypocrites. And I'm concerned when my lens is the same as those who crucified Jesus. If I'm a redeemed person, if I'm called and, and a part of him, I don't want to have the eyes of those who condemned Christ. I want to have the eyes of Christ. And that's an important thing for us. The Pharisees thought that their work, their effort, their, their righteousness got the attention of God. But the parables give us a different picture. It gives us a different picture. So let's look at verse 3. Jesus says, And he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Man, I love that song that we sing. Uh, uh, what's the name of it? Reckless Love. I should have known that. Reckless Love. You leave the 99. You come after the one. This is, the, this, is what, this is where the song comes from. You leave the 99. You come after the one. And then verse 5. And when you have found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So what is Jesus saying to the religious establishment in this, in this portion and saying to some of us because we can get a religious spirit in church if we've been in church long enough. It somehow jumps on us. And, and this is what Jesus is addressing. First, he's saying the priority goes to the lost. If you're a part of my kingdom, you're a part of my kingdom. And no longer am I having to pursue you. You're a part. You're in. So let's now look for those who are not a part of the kingdom. He gives priority to the lost. He's not concerned necessarily with the 99. He's concerned with the one. This is what Jesus is saying. And the shepherd in this parable Extends energy, expends energy and resources to go out and to find the sheep. Spending time and energy to find the one that has been lost. And the willingness of the shepherd was to go. The shepherd didn't just sit back in the field and say, Well, it's getting late. Uh, the sheep should be returning any time now. I hope it does because, you know, there's wolves and bears out there. No, the shepherd says, One is missing. I'm going to go find it. The shepherd leaves the fold, the safety of the field, to go find the sheep. And then he carries the sheep into a place of safety. 
Once the field is reached, the shepherd is holding on to the sheep. See, God's will for the lost involves finding them where they are. This is the great commission that he gives to us as disciples. Therefore, go. I've given you all power and authority on heaven and earth. And earth now, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes? This is what he tells them because he did that himself. Jesus, his very nature, God's very nature, was to step out of heaven, disrobe his glory and his honor, and he stepped in and, and wrapped himself in flesh so that he would go and find the lost. This is the picture, this is the imagery that Jesus gave for us. He says, I am a going God. I go to where people need me. I go to where there are lost things and lost sheep. I'm looking for the lost. Now, the second parable. Parable of the lost coin. Verse 8 says, And what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I want you to notice the word rejoice. In both parables, it talks about the celebration of the one who has found that which was lost. God throws a party for those when they come home. You say that God doesn't know how to party? God knows how to party. God wants to party with you. When a lost person comes to find Jesus and are found in Jesus, He throws a celebration. There's a celebration in heaven. What does this illuminate to our hearts about the will of God for the lost? That God, God is not some supercomputer running algorithms to find out who is going to be His disciple and who is not going to be, and then saying, well, it's a 74% chance that these people will not know me. You know, He's not up there like making all these logical reasons. Thank you for laughing. That was an attempt to sound like a robot of some sort. But he's not, he's not approaching us necessarily logically and with reason. We think that God's up there just kind of kicking back. No, God is emotional towards us. And he's motivated by love for us. That's why the song says it's reckless love. God, it doesn't make sense that you would leave 99 and go for the one. You have 99 out of 100. That's pretty good. If I got 99 out of 100 on a test, I'm thinking, hey, I don't worry about the one answer I got wrong, but God is like, no. Important one that I have. That one sheep that is missing is so important, so vital to me. I will do anything to go and redeem and find the one that is lost. God expresses His love through us to us emotionally. That's why when he finds it, he's like, what? man, have you ever been excited about anything besides sports? I get a little excited. My brother and my dad and I, we watch sports together. I mean, we have to hide footballs and stuff in the house because they're going to break. We get so excited. We're throwing stuff. We're like, woo, you know. They, they can tell you stories about that later. We get excited about things, but, but when's the last time we got excited about someone coming to Jesus? I mean, really excited. Not just like a little polite, like, oh, welcome, thank you. No, but like, are you kidding me? 
that person went from death to life. That person went from darkness to light, man. This is exciting for us because life has been changed forever. And for that person, their legacy, their destiny, and their lineage from here until eternity has been shifted, man. That is exciting. That's the heart of God for the lost. Do we have that heart for people? God, you have a heart for the lost. Do I have a heart for the lost? I want to have a heart for the lost. The two differences, the differences in, this, in these two parables it, it is important to recognize. See, at the most basic level, they're the same, right? It's finding something that's lost. But in the second parable, the emphasis is on the seeking more than the first. It talks that the woman is tearing up her home, seeking diligently until the coin is found. And it helps us recognize this idea of of spending resources and time finding something. Have you ever lost your keys in the house and you have to rip through the entire house to find them? Because if you don't have your keys, you're not going anywhere. I mean, you can call an Uber now, but, you know, that's extra money. You rip through things. You're trying to find stuff. And this woman used resources. She had to light a lamp, which means it was burning her oil. Oil was expensive. Jesus was trying to say, to find something, God is going to spend resources investing to find the lost. And this coin that she lost is not just like a nickel and dime you lose in the couch, you know? It's not like, oh, I'll find it later, maybe when I get around to it. You know, I look, oh, I, I misplaced it. No, this coin, these silver coins have great value. It's more like losing your entire month's pay somewhere in your house. And you don't have savings. So you need to get those to pay your bills. Keep your lights on, right? So she tears her entire house. It, it, what does it demonstrate to us? It demonstrates the value of what's been lost. Why is that important? Because in this time and age, the Pharisees devalued those that were sinners, those that were lost. They said they are not worth anything. They aren't worth Community, being in our community. They, are, they can't go into the temple. They can't, they can't sacrifice. They are filthy. They are dirty. Stay away from them. They have to, those who are, have diseases have to walk in the streets yelling, unclean, unclean. And God is saying, no, they are of great value and of great worth. And for us, sometimes in the church, we can see those who are not like us, who are living alternative lifestyles that we don't agree with, or living in different, even religions, and we can turn and say, filthy, dirty, unworthy, unclean. And God would say, no. Valuable, worthy, worth the blood my son shed for them. They're not where you want them to be. Because maybe you have not reached out and love them the way you should be loving them. What is our heart for those who are lost and undone, who don't know Jesus? Even if they were, are enemies of God, blasphemers, people that would say they would even hate God. How do we treat those still? 
How do we love them still? Because God would say, the only hope for them is the light I've put inside of you. Are you going to hide it? Are you going to be offended by the way they, they talk about you or the way even they talk about God? Are you willing to love them regardless with the same type of reckless love that God has for us? This is the question for us this morning. Do we view sinners as unworthy, uh, as of no value? Because last time I looked, I was somebody at one point in my life who did not put my trust in Jesus. And yet he said, you're worthy enough, enough for, for someone to reach out, love you, tell you the truth, and invite you into the kingdom of God. I think sometimes we get confused that we think that our sin, our failure, our mistakes diminish our value. We can think that God, they don't know what I've done. They don't know where I've been and what I've been doing and how long I've been doing it. And, and, and the enemy is really good at telling people you're not worth it. I don't want to say the same words or believe the same things the enemy speaks over people. Because sin cannot diminish your value or your worth. It can't taint the image of God that He has put inside of you when He made you. It can't. No matter what you think. Because if it were true, then Jesus would never have come to earth to redeem us. Because we were all walking in sin. We were all lost and undone. And yet Jesus looked down, looked past our sin and said, there's still worth and value there that I'm going to give my life for. And people, no matter where they're at or what they're doing or what they're professing to do, there is still, beyond all their sin and behind the layers of hurt and disgust, Jesus looks past all that today still and says, There's and I will pour out my life for them. And Jesus asks us to partner with Him in doing that. Doing that work. Because they're valuable. Their worth has not been diminished, no matter how many times the enemy will tell them that it's been diminished. Even for us today who have been redeemed, and we still struggle with sin, the enemy will tell you, you're not worthy, you're not a believer, you're not a Christian. The enemy doesn't have the roll call of those who are in Christ's camp. Jesus is in possession of the Lamb's book of life. He knows who's in. Who's out? The enemy can't tell you you're in or you're out. It's not his responsibility. It's not his job. He can't tell you. Because you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And even if you're sitting here this morning, you're still struggling and you feel worthless. You feel dirty. I'm telling you, you're not. All you have to do is turn to Jesus. Confess, believe, and receive. It's what he's calling all of us to do. And especially those who are far from him. God's will towards the lost reveals that people, they are people of immense value. Not only for eternity, but for the here and now. So our question is, how far are we willing to go to recover, redeem, and restore someone who is of great value to our God? To our Master, to our King, 
How much of our resources, our time, our energy, our money will we invest to, find, to see somebody come to the Lord? This next parable is called the prodigal son. And you can draw a ton of things from, from this parable. There's so many beautiful things that Jesus reveals in this story. But I want us to focus on the older brother and the father. In verse 11, I'm going to read it quickly. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of property that is coming to me. He's asking for his inheritance. Well, when when does inheritance usually, when is it given out? When the dad dies. Basically, the son is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. And so the father... Divides it, verse 13, he says, And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and began, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens in the country and, and sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to feed on the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But listen, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Amen. Verse 25, Now the older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back and safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, and yet you never even gave a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who, was, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What I think is powerful about this story is that the father didn't know when the son was going to return, but daily he was looking for him. We know that because he said while he was still a far way off, he saw him and had compassion for him and ran to him. Do you see God as that way? God diligently looking, searching, wanting the lost to come home, And when he does, the son can't even finish out the rehearsed speech that he's made. The father cuts him off and says, bring the best robe. 
Bring the ring. Bring shoes. And let's put it on him. Demonstrating honor and authority that the father was giving back to the son. The ring that he put on his finger was the father's signet ring, which means now he had the, the same authority as the father did. And he, called, he said, you're back. You're redeemed. You don't need to jump through all these hoops. You don't need to, to, to put yourself in the servant's quarters, beat yourself up. You're redeemed back and you're my son again. You were dead and now you were alive again. I have called you. You are mine and I redeemed you. You're, there's not a hierarchy you need to work through. You are back in my good graces. You are alive. And notice the, the contrast between the older brother calling the lost son, this son of yours. And then the father reminds him, no, it's your brother. He's your brother. See, the father is reminding the faithful son of his connection to the lost son. And this morning, God would remind us that we have a connection and a responsibility to those who are lost. They are not those who are lost. They are our brothers, our sisters, demonstrating a responsibility that God is calling us to. And God here throws a party in this parable. The Father throws a party again and celebrates. The reason I ask, when's the last time we celebrated when somebody comes into the kingdom? Because it can demonstrate our heart towards those who are lost. The older brother had a hard heart. He missed out on the party. He didn't celebrate. He didn't go in. He said, what about me? Where's my party? And if we can know if our hearts are hard toward those who are lost when someone comes and is redeemed into the kingdom of God and we're like, it probably won't last. They don't even know what they're doing. Eh, they're just saying a prayer. It means nothing. They won't change. You resemble more of the older brother than the father. But we sang a song that says, God, I want to be more like you. Which means we need to celebrate and seek after those who are lost. And throw a party when they come into the kingdom. Because that demonstrates the heart of the father. We don't want to be hard-hearted towards those. We want to have faith in believing that when God redeems somebody, he's redeemed them. So we're looking at these roles. Number one, God's role. God is the seeker. The Bible tells us that God's will is to seek those who are lost and have them re reunited with Him and with the family of God. His will is that none should perish, but all find everlasting life. And so He sent His Son that He, make, that he came to seek and save the lost. I mean, the most famous verse... But the world knows that Tim Tebow helped, you know, let everybody know about John 3.16. If it wasn't for Tim Tebow, no one would know this verse. <laughs> everybody knows it, right? For God so loved the world that he... Right? And then what else? Everybody knows... <laughs> Does everybody know this verse? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his son... I know you know it. I'm just messing with you. God is the seeker. And he celebrates when the lost come home. All three of these parables show great rejoicing and celebration when the lost are found. 
The concern isn't necessarily with those who have remained because the older brother always had access to the father. He could have eaten with him at any time. He could have spoken with him at any time. He had the leisure to come in and go out at any time. And so when we have a hard heart towards those who are lost and we say, well, why is God moving in their life and not moving in my life? You have access to the Father anytime you want through His Son, Jesus. Go to Him. Talk to Him. Love on Him. Spend time with Him. You have access. You have direct access. So the Lord is not concerned necessarily with those who have direct access to Him. You need something, go to Him. Ask Him. But He's concerned with those who have no access to Him, who don't know His Son, Jesus. And if they don't know Jesus, they have no access because Jesus is the one way to the Father. There is no other way. So God is the seeker. Number two, our role. What is our role corporately? Is to be diligent in our seeking. To be diligent in our seeking. See, if we see ourselves in God's will for the lost, we too will begin to seek the lost. It's that whole idea that God is initiating, He's inviting us to be a part of what He is doing. And now when we are redeemed in the kingdom, He says, now I'm a seeker. I'm going to seek those who are lost. Now that you're found, come with me. Let us find those who are lost to bring them back in. Our responsibility as the church is to seek the lost with Christ. He is going before us. He is the one who woos. The Holy Spirit says He woos the hearts of men. And we get to be a part of that. So we need to be diligently seeking as well. If we partner with Him, then we'll do the things that He's desiring to do. Now some of us have that gift already to evangelize. You can just walk up to anybody, you begin to tell them about Jesus, they break down, start crying, and they get saved right there in the Walmart. You know? Other of us were like, that's never going to happen, I can't do it. But we can do it corporately, we can go out in groups and do it. We can even do a Bible study in our home and invite people who don't know Jesus in because God is wanting for us to seek the lost. All of us. So if you don't necessarily have the gift of evangelism and going out by yourself, go out with somebody else. Or do something at your home and invite people into it. Or meet at the Starbucks and read your Bible together. Maybe somebody who is seeking, who is hurting and wants hope will say, what are you doing and why are you doing it? That's your opportunity to seek the lost. Create opportunities for people to know Jesus. And last, Jesus... He gives us the example of stepping out to find those who are lost. And we as His followers should do the same. If we say we, go where he, we follow where He goes, then if He's going for the lost, we need to follow Him towards the lost. We can't say, eh, it's out of my comfort zone. We don't have that opportunity. We don't have that decision to make. We are following Him. And lastly, Jesus in, in uh, chapter 16 he tells this parable about the shrewd manager. And now maybe some of you thought, well, hold on, this is a different chapter, so Jesus like, took a break you know, in this conversation and like, it's a whole other day or something. No, this is not how Luke wrote this. It's Actually, he was talking to the Pharisees, to the religious establishment, and then, in the same breath, turns to his disciples and tells them this parable of the shrewd manager. So in light of what he has just said in chapter 15, we look at chapter 16 to interpret this parable, which can be kind of confusing. And so he tells, he, he says, verse, uh, verse 1, And he said to his disciples, There was a rich man 
who had a manager, and charges were brought against him, this man, uh, for wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in your account of your management, for you no longer can be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed, I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. And so he begins to call in all of those who owe money to his, manager, or to his master, and he says, Hey, how much do you owe? He's like, I owe like a thousand bushels a week. He's like, Nah, you owe 600 bushels a week. The guy's like, Hey, all right, that's pretty good. I like this guy. He comes over here and he's like, How many, what do you owe my master? I owe him 1,200 barrels of olive oil. He says, No, you owe him 800. And he begins to slash all of these prices back to make relationships with those. He's cunning, he's shrewd. This is the, what shrewd means cunning, prudent, or wise. And he begins to make these deals with people. And in verse 8, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for his cunning. And he says this, For the sons of the world are more shrewd in the dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. See, verse 8 and verse 9, they highlight that believers should be more prudent with their resources so that their vested interests in people's lives can be eternal. See, to, inter to interpret this story correctly, we can't get hung up on the rightness or the wrongness of what this manager was doing because the Bible says that he's dishonest and he's shrewd and those are all what we would consider bad terms. But Jesus is, again, painting the picture. He says, for the sons of this world are more cunning than the, the, the sons of light. He's, he's, he's alluding to what we should be doing as believers. And actually, the manager had every right to manage the accounts the way he saw fit. And so he began to make these deals and these agreements. And it says that the, ma the master delighted in the manager's shrewd dealings with the resources that he had. And I, I'm reminded as believers that Jesus calls us to be as wise or as, what's the saying? To be as shrewd as serpents but as gentle as doves. The reason Jesus says that, he says, this generation is cunning and wise to get what they want when they want it. They'll do whatever it takes to make the extra buck, to get ahead. And yet the children of light, the sons and daughters of light, are sitting on the sidelines saying, well, I don't know. I don't know if I should make that step. I don't know if I should say that in public. I don't know if I could talk about this in my workplace. I am bound by these rules. And God is saying, I have given you a brain to be wise and to be cunning so that you can invest in people's lives for their eternity. Use your resources. Use your influence. Use your leverage that you have with people, even in high places, so that you can bring in the gospel of Jesus to places that do not have it. Don't walk around bound and, 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 and not able to think about how God can use you in your workplace, use you in the school setting, use you wherever you go, thinking that you're bound up by some legal obligation. Jesus says, use the resources I've given you. Be cunning. Because the people of this world are cunning. They're sly. They're doing what they can do to get ahead. How about you be cunning and sly to do 
uh, what it means to get ahead in the kingdom of God, which means to seek the lost and bring them in. Use whatever tools necessary to find those who are lost and bring them into the kingdom. It's not a sin. It is not wrong. To say, I'm going to use my intelligence. I'm going to use the things God's given me. I'm going to be cunning. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to be a shrewd manager of what God has given me to leverage this opportunity so that people can know Jesus. Not to build my own kingdom. Not, to, not so people can pat me on the back. I'm going to take every opportunity I have that I've been given so that people can know Him. The meaning of this scripture, that this passage when we talk about stewardship, stewardship is not just about conservation or, or um, conserving. Stewardship is not just about resource management. It's about using the resources God has given you in the right way to create a better opportunity for the larger purpose of God. So what's the big opportunity that stewardship is trying to accomplish in our lives? The answer is found in this story. Our stewardship, the stewardship of ourselves, the stewardship of the resources God has entrusted to us is to serve the greater purpose of making disciples, growing God's kingdom, and investing in the welfare of others. Stewardship, especially in the means of finances, is not about enriching ourselves, but it's about giving away what God has given to you so that people can come into the kingdom of God. It's about giving and even forgiving in order to secure people's eternity. In this parable, the manager is doing every right that he has to secure for him an eternal future. He was no longer concerned with his immediate. He says, what can I do now, now that this is going to be over, so that I can have a future later on? And for us, we need to get our eyes off of the immediate things that we're walking through in this life because there's something greater beyond this life. And we need to begin to invest in the greater. We begin to invest in, the, in, in eternity rather than being so consumed with what's temporal, what we see, what we can touch, what we can taste, what we can feel. A lot of times we get so consumed, especially in the United States with consumerist mentality of buying more and getting more and enriching our lives. But that's not stewardship. Stewardship is give it away. Use your resources. Use your power. Use your abilities to bring people into the kingdom of God. That's true stewardship. Amen. Enriching ourselves with earthly goods is not stewardship. But giving of ourselves, our gifts, our talents, our treasure, our creativity, our resources, with cunning to help secure the future of people with God is what stewardship's about. So, number three, my role. Be mindful of God's interests. Be mindful of God's interests. So God has called us to partner with Him, and He blesses us to bless others, and He places responsibility of His creation on our shoulders, then we must be wise and cunning managers of the things that God has given us. If God's will is for the, those who are lost to be saved, for them to be from the dark and come into the light, and for life to be brought out of dead places, then that's what our calling is to do as well. We are called to be people of light that go into dark places and reveal the light of Jesus. And He invites us to be a part of that. So we need to be mindful 
of God's heart. We need to be mindful of God's interests. As I walk with Jesus, the more that you spend time with Jesus, the more your orientation will go from me-centered to others-centered because that's the will of God. Getting your attention off of you, turning it to Him and to what He's doing in the world. As we, as we spend time with the Father, as we spend time with Jesus, as we spend time with the Holy Spirit, this is what shifts in us. So as I conclude this morning, I want to tell us that God's heart is for the lost. My heart and your heart should be as well. Our heart must be for the lost. If God's will is for the, the lost to be redeemed, then my role is to be a part of that process, to do whatever is necessary to accomplish His will. God is the seeker, so He invites us to seek diligently with Him, with God's interest and priority as our focus.